This is the Life Changing Conversations podcast. Thought provoking, pioneering, provocative, challenging, and intriguing. And that's just Neil Shah. Neil delves into the lives of his eclectic mix of guests. With his probing, curious approach, Neil explores what these ordinary people with extraordinary stories are all about, discovering what motivates them, how experiences have shaped them, leading them to change the course of their lives. Join us in the conversation. Like, comment, share, and tell us what you think on our LCC Facebook page and here on iTunes. Welcome to this week's Life Changing Conversations podcast. This week's topic is something I am extremely passionate about, something I've been reading and researching for many, many years, because it's something that could quite literally help thousands of people who are suffering with depression and other mental health conditions and are unable to get help from traditional means. My guest today is Dr. Rosalind Watts from Imperial College London. She's been part of a research team who, for the first time in over 50 years, has been allowed to research psilocybin's effects on depression. Psilocybin is more commonly known as magic mushrooms, and it's something that is starting to get somewhat of a resurgence. I'm hearing this more and more, I'm seeing more and more research, I'm seeing more and more magazines, and this is something, as I said, I have a great personal interest in. From what I've read so far, the evidence is really compelling. This could literally be a complete game changer in the way we treat mental illness. Rosalind, it's so amazing to have you here today. Thank you. I want to get a sense of who's behind this work. You're obviously doing some incredible work, which has the potential to be a real game changer. I know kind of you started started off as a therapist in a hospital setting, using talk therapies as a way of treating depression. And, and I'm sure inevitably you would have uh, referred to antidepressants as well. So you know, give us a sense of your background. Who, who is Rosalind? So I kind of, I became a clinical psychologist um, in a bit of a funny way, really. It was never actually my original plan to be a clinical psychologist. When I was growing up, I always wanted to be a barrister, a criminal law barrister. (laughs) Okay. Um, Because my mum was a psychologist, is a psychologist, and my sister is, and I just felt like I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't know why I wanted to be a barrister. There's something about kind of like fighting for the rights of people that don't have a platform or, you know, kind of injustice and... Yeah, um, but doing my work experience with a with the barrister, um, yeah, I realised it wasn't for me. Um, I, I realised actually that, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of working within a system that felt to me to be pretty flawed. And um, yeah, I I think the barrister actually that I was working with actually told me to be a psychologist because I was asking too many questions about the mental health of people and whether it was right that they would be put in prison for. For, for doing things that represented to me just a lack of support and mm. you know, that their needs weren't being met. Um, so, yeah, and then when I first became a psychologist, I actually worked in a prison initially, which I guess was because of my interest in forensic mm. things. And um, that was a very profound experience, you know, a young offender institution for a couple of years. And I think it really taught me that, um, you know, people, people are good, everyone has good in them, even people have done really quite terrible things. Um, that there is real good inside us and that people can be so, so, so failed by some of the systems we have in place. It's just, it was just felt really tragic. It was, because it was young offenders, these people were so, I mean, these, it was men, they, they were all so young and they'd come from such tragically sad backgrounds and it just felt like their lives were kind of over before they even really began. Um, but I also really also got an appreciation of how um, the therapeutic models that were very much in vogue then 
and still in vogue now in the mainstream state of cognitive behavioural therapy. Sure, it can be great for some people sometimes. However, that was the model that was used in the prison. And working with these groups of young men who had raped and assaulted and killed, working with them using cognitive behavioural methods, which is, you know, working on this very surface level of what were your negative thoughts, why did you think them, how can we change it in the future, was just like, you know, just felt completely inappropriate and actually almost damaging and kind of almost felt like we were kind of replicating the abuse that they'd all suffered by sitting them in a room, sitting them down, kind of telling them that they had to listen to us and, you know, this room full of, of men from these very violent backgrounds with a couple of young, overprivileged girls trotting around telling them to think differently. It just felt really, really wrong on so many levels. They're going over the story over and over again. They're having people in power, experts telling them what they did wrong. But there's nothing powerful, there's nothing that makes them feel good about themselves or sense of self-love or self-worth. And the thing I've seen over and over again with psychedelics is that it can make, it's not just about thinking things differently, it's if you feel things differently and people feel sometimes for the first time in their lives that they are good and they are loved and that's the only thing that's going to work. You can't take someone that's suffering from depression or that's um, committed lots of crime, suffering from deprivation, suffering from any of the kind of ills that plague our society. You can't take anyone in that situation and tell them to do it differently. They've got to feel that they are good and they are worthy of love and that's when things change. There is a place for talk therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, but you wouldn't treat a broken leg, a stroke or a heart attack with a sticking plaster. And I'm not for a second saying CBT is sticking plaster, but you know, a lot of the talk therapies work at a particular level and they can yeah. be beneficial at a particular level. Mm -hmm. But for deeper traumas or, uh, or, or something that you know, has deeply impacted someone's psyche, mm -hmm. um, we may need to approach it in a very different way yeah. than just with talk therapies. Tell us about the work you do and how you treat patients with depression. In the last study, people came in uh, for two sessions with psilocybin. So they'd come into the clinic and they'd have a full day with a couple of therapists in a room that was designed specifically for psilocybin sessions. So not a typical hospital room. It had nice lights and uh, candles and plants and drapes. So it felt like a kind of comfortable living room mm -hmm. and a really beautiful playlist and they would sit with their therapist all day, having had some psilocybin, as you say, magic mushrooms, and just talking through things and feeling different emotions, whatever came up, just going with it. Um, and yeah, then afterwards, some therapy support to process what's, what's happened for them. So effectively, just to understand this correctly, they were having therapy whilst under the influence of, of psilocybin? Well, it's interesting because they were, but the therapy was happening within themselves. Ah. So the, if you were to watch the session, you would see, um, for, mo for the most part, somebody lying on a, on a kind of hospital bed with drapes and stuff with their eye shades on, listening to music, um, and often lying quite still, and you wouldn't really know much was going on. There might sometimes be some tears, but often sitting quite still. But actually when you talk to people afterwards, they might say that at that point they were having a conversation with their father, or they were grappling with demons from their past, or they were having a, a spiritual experience. All sorts of very intense things were going on, although you couldn't really tell from the outside sometimes. And externally, what were the therapists doing to, to support people through this experience? Well, 
At this stage, therapeutic input is very much for support as opposed okay. to really yeah. intervening or, or really guiding session. So we do actually call the therapist guides, mm. but it's not a very good term because it implies that the therapist kind of know which direction the person is going on. Whereas in fact, that's not the case at all, that you're more like a kind of assistant, um, uh, you're, you're really, or a kind of like, I don't know, like a flight attendant or something. Mm-hmm. You're, um, you're just there with people whilst they go on their own journey. So yeah, the therapists don't really ever um, bring in new material. They don't ask questions. The most you would ever really ask someone is, would you like to share with me where you are right now? If you haven't heard from someone for a while and you're wondering and you feel it's important for you to connect with them in that way. But a lot of the time, they, they're kind of left to themselves. It's really important to have the therapist there because these experiences can be so intense. And people have all heard about you know bad trips. People have heard about bad acid trips. And I think the difference between a bad acid trip and a really, really powerful, transformative psychedelic experience is whether or not you have people there and a quiet place to be to support you through it. Mm. Because those moments of panic if you feel really overwhelmed because it is a very intense um, experience of being in a very altered state. If you're there in that, in that state and somebody can help you move through it and you feel safe, then it can lead to great realisations. But if you're stuck on your own with those, that powerful sensation of whatever it is you're going through, then it can become very scary. People often say that a psilocybin session is a little bit like 10 years of therapy in one day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hope in the future... It can be it can be even more than that if you provide people with particular interventions afterwards. And so, just give us a bit of a background. So, what is psilocybin? Where does it come from? So, it's the the active um, component of magic mushrooms, mm-hmm. which grow all over the world. Um, we have a very rich history of magic mushrooms growing in the UK. Um, and we don't actually use mushrooms in the study and that's because it's a clinical trial so any medications need to be to a very very high standard where we know exactly what they are they're completely pure and you can't do that with fresh mushrooms or like you know a plant so it's synthetic so it's made in a lab and yeah i mean it seems to have very similar effects so it's it's a it's a it's a chemical reproduction of the plant itself yes Okay. Yes. And, and obviously, sort of psilocybin for, for, for most people is more commonly known as magic mushrooms. And I guess many people would have heard of it or an association with people using it recreationally to mm-hmm. have a psychedelic trip and, and to, to get high. And, and I think that's why for people that don't really understand this, may have some kind of a cultural bias mm-hmm. or, or a negative stigma towards this. So, you know, talk to us about the difference between, you know, exploring recreational use of magic mushrooms and the way that you guys are using psilocybin as a therapeutic mm-hmm. modality. It can be so, 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 so different. So some people doing it, using mushrooms recreationally will have therapeutic experiences with it. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a lot of variety and some people have really, really quite traumatic experiences with it. Um, I suppose it's in the same way that, you know, you can kind of you know, think about a knife. A knife can be used to really hurt yourself or it can be used to cut a cake you know it's um it's a psilocybin is a very powerful instrument and it is capable of causing damage in the same way that a knife is but it's also capable of you know slicing through problems you know and and opening up new new worlds for people so when it's done in the lab setting or therapeutic setting 
you know, I'm really confident that it's really safe. When it's done with the right people, we, we don't include people in our studies with a history of psychosis or a family member with psychosis, a close family member, just because we we think that there could it could trigger a psychosis potentially um, with those people, so we're being very cautious at the moment. Um, it, 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 the, the kind of mental state that it does trigger, that, that psilocybin does bring about, does kind of model a psychosis, but a temporary psychosis. Mm. So people can feel quite kind of disorganised at times and things can feel a bit crazy and mad, but it's a short-term experience and then things... Um, it's a kind of experience of um, chaos, but then things settle. So one of Robin's analogies is like shaking the snow globe mm. and everything's kind of a bit chaotic but then things settle and things settle in a healthier way than they were before yeah. and also some my understanding from my research that the, the set and setting is also a significant influencing factor on what kind of experience you're going to have obviously if you're doing a recreation in a field or a festival yeah. yes. it's very different to the set and setting that you may use yeah. in, a, in, in a kind of in a more therapeutic environment yeah so yeah, when we talk about set and setting, so set is the mindset that people have when they go into the experience. And um, yeah, this one's interesting to me because I don't think it's as simple as if you're expecting a good experience and you're feeling calm, then you'll have a calm, good experience. Whereas if you're anxious, you'll have an anxious experience. I really don't think it works that way mm-hmm. because what we've seen over and over again is um, people you know, with severe depression feeling highly anxious about the experience at the beginning can then have really profound, calm, beautiful, blissful experiences. And sometimes people who are quite gung-ho about it and go into it, maybe not so much in the therapy, in the, the study, maybe more, I've heard anecdotally in kind of, you know, therapy space, uh, ceremony, ceremony spaces, going quite gung-ho, think it's going to be great and have absolutely harrowing times. So I don't think, when, I, when people talk about a set and setting, for me, what a set really means is preparation. It's not so much if you feel good or if you feel bad. It's more, it doesn't matter if you feel anxious and, and scared. It doesn't matter if you're terribly depressed. Um, that doesn't mean you're going to have a terrible time. What matters is that you've been fully prepared so that you know what you're about to undergo. And if you've been fully prepared and you know that you're going to go through something that can feel quite disorienting and one of the patients in the last study described it as like driving a car off the edge of a cliff mm. and having to not turn the steering wheel. You know, with a high dose, it's a big surrender. You know, you have to really let go and you have to really, you know, people can sometimes feel like they're dying and, they, and you know, just going with that. And, you know, they don't, obviously they don't actually die. They go, they, they feel like they are, but then they get reborn into some new place or something happens, but to really surrender. So if people are prepared for that, then, um, then I think that's the key thing about set. But in terms of setting, um, yeah, that's just about the trust they have, trust for themselves, trust for their substance, trust for the therapist, um, and, and those are the key things. You know, it's amazing that you're doing this, this incredible work and the, the, the research you're doing, as I said, quite literally could be a game changer. You know, just give us a bit more of a background as to what psilocybin is, where it comes from. Mm-hmm. So... The research came about, so I work my my team, so it's the Imperial College Psychedelic Research Group, and the head of the group is David Nutt, who's pretty famous for his um, advocacy work. He's a very, very sensible man, and he noticed this complete craziness in the um, in that drugs that are most harmful are legal. So alcohol is one of the most harmful drugs, tobacco is one of the most harmful drugs, and actually psilocybin is one of the least harmful drugs, yet it is 
Schedule one, very difficult to study. Mm. Um, it's even more illegal than heroin. It's much easier to research heroin, which is schedule two, than it is psilocybin. And that's because heroin has therapeutic value. Yeah, so, so schedule one is like there's no therapeutic value and it's dangerous. Schedule two means that there is some potential therapeutic value, so it's used as a painkiller. And it's just crazy because we know the opposite is true. That mm. Psilocybin has got thousands of years of history of being used as a, as a therapeutic agent. And um, the harms of it's one of the least harmful of all, all these drugs. So... So David Nutt has done lots of work to kind of right that wrong, and he's still he's still going for it now. Um, so you know he was sacked by the government because he said that MDMA was less dangerous than horse riding, which is true, but they they weren't ready to hear that truth. <laughs> <laughs> I find fascinating about uh, Professor Nutt's work mm. is that he's obviously made a lot of statements which doesn't agree with cultural bias and, yeah. the, and, and the, the, the accepted narrative, but yeah. I think these are things that we need to accept. Yeah. I, I, I genuinely believe if I create alcohol today, it will be illegal. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he, so David Nutt, um, so that's kind of his background and that's why he's interested in this work, I think, because he's really interested in exploring to see what, what treatments can be beneficial, quite apart from the, the bias of, of um, yeah, the kind of scaremongering that we've all been mm. through that makes us think that certain things are morally wrong and bad. Um, so I think David Knight is just very much interested in, in kind of the truth and, um, you know, really looking things through the lens of science. And he can see that there's been an awful lot of complete kind of misinformation about drugs with terrible consequences, actually. Mm. Um, but also people missing out on treatments that could help them. I mean, we get so many emails from people who are suffering, who are desperate, they've tried everything, they've tried every treatment the NHS has had to offer, and nothing's helped them, and they're desperate, and it's so heartbreaking, because I know, look, we don't know for everybody, because psilocybin won't be for everyone, it won't help mm. everyone, and for some people they might, you know, it's, it's too early in the research to say that there actually some people might have negative responses, we're not sure yet, it's very early days, but... Um, but I know for a lot of people it does help, and I'm pretty sure when people when people email me, I get this sense of oh, I really wish I could, you know, direct you to somewhere where you could go and have this experience, and there's nowhere I can direct them. So I mean, of course, you know, our study is only gonna the, the upcoming study is gonna take fifty people, and we have these we've got a database of over a thousand people, wow. um, and it's heartbreaking that we have to turn so many away. Um, so yeah, so that's David Knight anyway, and then Robin Carhart Harris is um, he's he's the head of our group, so he. Um, his background is that he started off with it. He uh, started off studying psychology. Was very very interested in Freud and the unconscious mind, mm-hmm. um, and then also as a neuroscientist, so he was interested in, in mm. you know imaging the unconscious mind, how you how you can really study it with brain imaging, and thought that psychedelics are a very very good tool for that, altering consciousness. So he I think started off from that perspective of you know consciousness research. Um, but has become more and more interested in the therapeutic healing of, of psilocybin. So that's the background of the work. I mean, Robin worked really quite tirelessly to get the permissions to do this work because it's almost impossible to do. And thanks to his early work, we've now got a clear pathway. So when we, when we want to do another psilocybin study, well, the, the, also the group has done DMT studies and LSD studies, we usually get the green light because Amazing. we've got a good track record, so we can we can kind of do whatever research we want now because um, people know that we'll do it well and safely, and that you know. So that's amazing. So it's thanks to them that we're doing this work. Yeah. So I guess what I'm starting to recognise is not everything that is legal is safe or good for you, mm-hmm. and not everything that is illegal mm-hmm. is bad for you or dangerous. Yes. 
And I guess this is also something that I'm starting to learn is not a new thing. That, you know, historically, there were thousands of research papers on this in the 50s and 60s. And it seems like literally quite overnight, this research was shut down. What's behind that? How did that come about? There were lots of there were lots of factors. Um, so I guess firstly, when the when um, so LSD was discovered by Albert Hoffman, who was a chemist, and he stumbled upon it really. Well, actually, one of his female lab assistants stumbled upon it. That part of the story gets missed out a lot. He wasn't sure what it would be useful for, but thought for something, and he sent it out to the, the, he was working for Sandoz, which was a pharmaceutical company. They sent it out to psychiatrists and therapists to see what it might be useful for and then not so long after that they the same Albert Hoffman and Sandoz synthesized psilocybin and they were sent samples of it from a shaman in Mexico and they they yeah they sent it out to lots of um, psychiatrists and therapists and they started pioneering psychedelic therapy and there were clinics in America and the UK devoted to psychedelic therapy they had really good outcomes it was useful for people with alcohol problems, depression, anxiety. It was used for so many different things. And they were very, very positive about it. And there was no stigma about it then. It was just that, you know, like any other kind of you know, it was a treatment they were exploring. And then it started to go wrong when Timothy Leary... Well, I'm not going to pin it all on Timothy Leary, but, I mean, he was, he was kind of part of the process. So there was a Harvard psychologist, Timothy Leary, who um, I think was a quite a straight-laced Harvard man and then... Um, discovered psilocybin he went to Mexico and took some some magic mushrooms and had a very profound experience and then became became more and more I suppose kind of obsessed with psychedelics it is very possible to become very very um, enamoured with them people can I think I have also seen the kind of psychedelics world people that take a lot of psychedelics and don't integrate it can become quite narcissistic People can get a bit of a messiah complex and think they're kind of God. Um, they are quite magical tools, and people can become think that they're magic and think that they are magic themselves and think that they're magicians. And um, there, there are lots of you know kind of pitfalls with this with this work. So I think that's what happened to Timothy Leary, and he started telling everybody to turn on, tune in, drop out, and that everybody should be taking psychedelics, which is of course madness because. Not everybody should do anything, you know. Every, the, there's no treatment that will be right for everybody, and and although I, I love the idea of our society being profoundly changed by them, you know, the idea that everyone would just kind of leave their work and just start taking psychedelics in the streets, crazy idea. So, lots of young people started taking them with lots of other substances and kind of party settings and having really bad trips because they weren't supported. Yeah. You know, that the dark side of suggesting that everyone just do it now is that people weren't supported in in what they were doing. So. You know, hospitals get full of people having bad trips, and it becomes very visible. So, so the kind of old. So, I think the the key problem, and it's a problem that we don't face today. I think this is actually Michael Pollan's point in his book, um, How to Change Your Mind, that when people in the fifties, young people in the fifties and sixties, started taking psychedelics, their parents were of such a different generation that the chasm between these young people protesting the Vietnam War and opening up to this feeling of love and we are all one, which is of course fundamental to the psychedelic experience is this message that people consistently get which is we are all one they feel it in their bones we are all connected and it's very different to the disconnected lives we normally lead and it's a very different message we're usually told so this message of we are all one um young people getting that message feeling that not wanting to fight in a war not wanting to toe the line the way their parents had wanting to 
do things differently, wanting to enjoy nature, protect nature, not wanting to go and buy things. And this huge chasm between them and their parents meant that there was a real kind of social... There was real friction and a kind of breakdown of social structures. And that's why there was the very strong war on drugs as a reaction and there was this crackdown. I think it was Ronald Reagan. It was just like, no, we're not having that. Just say no to this, this is wrong. And the great thing about now is that the people who are, you know, young people now taking psychedelics, their parents may well have taken them as well. So that we, we are coming to a time where there's just, it's becoming more acceptable in our culture. And obviously the science will, will have a huge part in that as well. And so, you know, this whole idea that, that, that psychedelics and psilocybin was really dangerous, painting this image that people were losing their mind yeah. and linked to hippies. Yeah. You, you know, obviously that's kind of created somewhat of a cultural bias. Yes. And... I, I guess the challenge is now we're not only fighting to ensure that the research gets the light of day, but you're also fighting the cultural bias yeah. that exists where people automatically think that you are, you're doing drugs and it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, the legacy of that is really, really sad because, yeah, so what happened in the, in the 60s when it was made illegal is that there was this kind of campaign against it. So there was this out-and-out media campaign. And it was just, I mean, it's hilarious. If you look at it, it's kind of like woman, woman takes LSD and has sex with frog you know or, or something you know i can't remember how it they're just is that impossible well god i mean i think i might have made that one up actually but, um, but you, you know that's gonna go viral think, yeah. people are gonna listen to this just for that quote dr roslyn watts yeah. review says woman has psychedelic experience then sex with frog sex with frog sex um, I think it was something about being pregnant with a frog or something. I read that. I remember reading that. Frog. That was yeah. yeah. She got pregnant, pregnant by, with a frog. She went swimming in a pond, and then yeah, uh, the, yeah. I re- remember that was in the newspaper. Something about women being <laughs> pregnant with a frog. I mean, God knows. What, but you, you look at these. I mean, I've seen them at some conferences in a presentation. Some of the headline stories of the kind of sixties horror, panic, scare. I mean, it was all about kind of like cannabis like a um, reefer madness like cannabis sending pe- women into prostitutes and basically the, the theme was if you take psychedelics you're going to become like a dirty dark horrible creature there was this real kind of darkness about it and the reality is every day the doctor was serving you up something that actually was going to cause that was going to yeah. send you into darkness yeah, and yeah, potentially yeah. could send you down that path yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was okay yeah. and we didn't yeah. talk about that at all because your doctor gave it to you and it yes. came in a blister pack yes absolutely well yeah completely I mean, if you look at the uh, opiate crisis in America that's, that is all too true and, and actually the antidepressant crisis I mean I call it a crisis we, we talk about the opiate crisis and I think we have a crisis of antidepressants it, antidepressants mm-hmm. the, the prescription of antidepressants is it's at an all time high last year there were 64.7 million prescriptions of antidepressants in the UK it was double what it was the year before um, um, it's just I, I, in the, I go to you know we have the psychedelic integration group someone um, the other day was talking about how they were, were going through some mourning something had happened and they went to their doctor because they were just crying all the time and they didn't know what to do and um, the doctor just prescribed them antidepressants it's quite clear that someone is going through a, a particular crisis and needs community support and is given tablets. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, sometimes it can be helpful for people just to numb emotions. If we were very clear about what antidepressants seem to do, which is they, they seem to numb people's feelings for the short term, then it, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's one in your, that's one of, something in your toolbox. Sometimes you want to numb yourself. Okay, that's your choice. But to call them antidepressants as if they treat depression, stop the cause of depression. I mean, if that were to be the case, then you would take them and then you wouldn't need them anymore because you wouldn't be depressed. 
and that is certainly not the case. People, people that start taking antidepressants can be on them for years and years and years. Uh, yeah, this is something I kind of have a real personal gripe with because there are people that I know that have you know suicide ideation or self harming and are given antidepressants and they get worse. Yeah. Uh, and actually increases the symptoms. And actually, if you look at the contraindications of some of these medications, that it clearly says that some of the side effects could be suicide ideation. It could be you yeah. know feelings of anxiety or dark thoughts and this kind of thing. So we're actually giving people medication that we know potentially might make it worse. And also the data suggests that it helps, you know, really only a small percentage of people. And it goes back to the earlier points that you raised, that sometimes you just need to go through that pain. You need to face that. Numbing yourself to it, it just means that you're just bottling that problem up and locking it away for another day. Yeah. So Stan Groff, who is um, one of the great, great psychedelic therapists, psychedelic psychiatrist, who was working with these substances in the 50s and 60s and now does a lot of work with them still, and he was one of the pioneers of holotropic breath work, which mm-hmm. is a, a technique yeah. for getting kind of psychedelic states without using psychedelics just through the breath, which is very powerful and amazing. But Stan Groff's analogy, which I love, is he says it's a bit like, so if you imagine that your, kind of, your car was broken and your, the, 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 there was kind of an indicator like flashing and you took it to the mechanic and say, this red light is flashing on my car. Taking antidepressants is a bit like the mechanic saying, oh, okay, I'll, I'll sort that for you and just smashing the light out so that the indicator lights bust. It's like, it's fine, the light's gone. And you're like, yeah, but, <laughs> okay. What about looking to see what's actually the problem and why the light's flashing? I mean, that's what antidepressants tend to do is just smash the indicator light. Mm. But when I, I, I also have to say that some of my good friends and colleagues who are psychiatrists, sometimes, you know, we have these debates and they sometimes say, yeah, but they do work for a lot of people. You know, they do, the, the, in their practice, in their experience, that there are a lot of people that are really suffering and really at the point of kind of can't cope. And for some people, not all, some antidepressants seem to actually work. So I'm all for them, them being part of, the, of the, the, the solution, but they're not the only solution. So you obviously gave us a sense of how you actually do the research. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the people that volunteer? What are their backgrounds, sort of what would constitute someone that is relevant to be a part of this study? So in the last study, it was people with treatment-resistant depression, Mm -hmm. um, which basically means that they've tried lots of things and nothing has worked. Mm. And in our sample last time, people had had depression for an average of 18 years, and they'd tried between three and I think 20 types of antidepressants. Wow. And they'd had up to six courses of talking therapy, and nothing had helped. So they were people with very, very entrenched depression. And they weren't psychedelic enthusiasts. Some of them had had experiences of psychedelics in their earlier years, but they'd usually been pretty terrible experiences because they hadn't done it in a safe place mm. and they hadn't had anyone supporting them through it. So they were actually more anxious about psychedelics than, um, than people that had never tried it. But it is really interesting that the point we were talking about before that about set and setting that actually being very anxious about a psychedelic experience doesn't mean that they would have a bad time. Like Most of them were absolutely petrified and they, most of them had absolutely wonderful experiences. So, um, yeah, I, think, I find that really reassuring that some people say to me when I, when I talk to kind of friends and stuff about this work and say, yeah, we give psilocybin to people that are actually in a very vulnerable position. Like, what? How would you give mind-expanding drugs to people that are vulnerable? And actually, I feel like psilocybin is actually very often as well as being quite tough, it can also be a very soothing and containing mm. and kind of blissful experience for people. And it can be full of, it can be very pleasant, you know, and for people that haven't experienced pleasure for a long time, it's quite nice to have an experience of enjoying the taste of things, and the colours and the music and feeling mm. really quite lovely. So yeah, so the last study was treatment-resistant depression. The upcoming study, which is just about to start, 
is people is major depression. So we're not we we don't have the caveat that people need to have tried different treatments that haven't worked. Mm-hmm. People can come to it as a first line treatment, and we think this is important because we don't want people to think that psilocybin is something to try if nothing else has worked. We think it could actually be a really good first line treatment. So there's no reason why somebody with a first experience of, of depression couldn't go to psilocybin as their first their mm. first attempt at treatment. And I guess, you know, the, the thing that comes up for me is that, that in these kind of experiences, you're inevitably going to get what you need, not what you want. Yeah. And there, there are people that are, are chasing or seeking a particular experience. Mm. And the subconscious is always going to bring up what you need to work Absolutely. with and what you need to reflect. Yeah. And I think this potentially is where the psychedelics are just removing the veil between yeah. you and the deeper aspects of yourself and yeah. allowing you to actually go there. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. So, and various different people have talked about this, sometimes turn the... Um, the homeostatic principle or the inner mm-hmm. healing mechanism yeah. mm-hmm. and this idea that your you your kind of whole being will balance itself if given the opportunity to um so that in this um state of plasticity that the psychedelics bring about neural plasticity there is there is room for for change there is room for the system to be altered and then it sways in the direction of balance mm-hmm. so it, yeah, people have these experiences that you would never really predict um, necessarily because the balance needed to happen in a way that you couldn't have known hmm. and that people themselves couldn't have known consciously. But so often when we were talking to people after the experience about what they'd been through in the different stages, they would sit back and say exactly what you said, which is like, yeah, it wasn't really what I expected, but looking back, it was really that was really what I needed to heal and to move forward sometimes show quite complicated kind of beautifully choreographed sessions where people will be shown this and then taken there and then this will be brought in and it, it is as if the, the sessions were choreographed by an amazing therapist that had you know so many things at their disposal and like all complete insights and wisdom so your patients um what, what did they experience what what did they report about their depression post the study you know what, what 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 were the results so so of the 20 people 11 people had two to three months of being depression free or having very mild symptoms of depression so the depression went into remission wow um and we think that two to three months is kind of what you tend to see in terms of maybe like a bit of an afterglow initially so people can feel very very wide open and wonderful and then it starts to kind of fade a bit but that they would get about two to three months of real benefits and then depression came back for six of them they had um longer than that like six months of being depression free or very mild depression before it came back so in terms of effect sizes which is a way of kind of statistically showing how how effective something is how big the effect is if with um, standard treatments for depression so like talking therapy or um antidepressants you're looking at effect sizes that are about, I think off the top of my head, like 1.5, 1.6, which basically means they're effective, they're not that much more effective than placebo, and they only work for about 50% of people, but they still do work. You know, in mm. studies we show that antidepressants do work, they stop people from being depressed. But when you compare that to psilocybin, the effect sizes of psilocybin were extremely high. They, they kind of dwarfed the effect sizes for mm. antidepressants and talking therapy, so they were over two which is very, very kind of unheard of. So when you show the results mm. to people, they think you've made them up because, you know, they can't, it can't be that good, but yeah. it really is that good. And mm-hmm. um, people literally overnight going from being very, very depressed to the next day waking up saying, 
oh my god, I am not depressed for the first time in 10 years. I don't have depression, it's not there. No. Kind of like the clouds have parted. The clouds have parted. I went from being in deep dark cloud, the clouds have parted, I am not depressed. And people's partners saying, what has happened? And it was actually very disappointing for people when the depression, when the clouds started to come back in again, mm. which is the next thing we have to think about is how we can help the clouds stay parted for longer. But yeah, so in terms of the effect sizes, they were absolutely phenomenally good. And that was because we had a very small sample. I'm sure when we do bigger studies, we'll find that the effect sizes start to go down a bit. Mm. We don't think it's a miracle cure, but it's very, it shows that there's a lot of promise mm. here. And you said, you know, obviously that, that for, for many people it did return. Yeah. Uh, do you have any kind of theories as to, to why people would have returned back to that depressed state? So if you think about the, the psychological flexibility I was mentioning before, so um, when people are in, I guess, psychopathology, mm. um, when people so. are suffering from um, different types, different kind of mental health problems, I guess, um, in my training we talk, talk about it as psychopathology mm. it's a bit of a funny term so when the people are struggling in distress they're often in very rigid states so anxiety depression, OCD things like that, people are in very very rigid stuck states and we see that both in terms of their behaviour and their thinking and their emotions and their brain so what psilocybin one of the things that psilocybin seems to do is that um, there's a, there's a network in the brain called the default mode network mm -hmm. and that is your kind of it's the biological basis of the sense of self it's your ego it's what keeps you in line it's your default setting and it's keeping you safe so do this don't do this da, 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 da. it's kind of what your mind naturally goes back to unless you're focusing on another task and with people with depression the default mode network is pretty strong and very active it's this kind of rumination going over and over and over and over things that they've done wrong or worrying about things in the future it's this very kind of stuck um, pattern of, of self-referential thinking and people can get stuck in it for kind of all day every day they're thinking about themselves and what they've done wrong and what they should have done differently and what they need to do but different they need to do more of the future um so psychedelics psilocybin deactivates the default mode network in the in the acute phase of the experience so it can feel like the ego is being dissolved the sense of self is being dissolved um and it it's really like um a state of plasticity so one one analogy for thinking about it is so this is actually the analogy of my colleague Mendel Kalin who I think this is a really really good one so I always steal it from him <laughs> it's the default mode if you imagine like a snowy mountain um, and imagine sledging down that snowy mountain over and over and over again you get very deep tracks in the snow and the more you sledge down the deeper the tracks get and then after a while it's very difficult to go anywhere else other than those deep tracks because they're just so so entrenched and the default mode network is basically that it's your very very deep sledged track in the snow that you always go down and people with depression it's a negative track and what psilocybin does it's like a big snow plow that comes over it and just wipes that track out so for a while there is this plasticity there's this flexibility different parts of the brain talk to each other the default mode network isn't running the show so much there's more flexibility and people can try this or try that, and they see themselves differently, they feel differently about others, they, it's flexibility. But then, if that flexibility isn't maintained, just like with sport, if you don't keep doing yoga, rigidity will return. So if you give people a one-off experience of psilocybin, or two doses of psilocybin, and then, as you say, their life is waiting for them, they get back into those, those old patterns. So I think in order to maintain that flexibility, I see the ideal treatment as being something where people might have maybe a dose every six months for a while 
or maybe once a year or maybe you know whatever it depends on the individual but alongside that they would start meditation they would start doing exercise they would start eating healthily they would start connecting with other people in in groups they would start maybe doing some all sorts of things so some voluntary work some you know for service to the community so many things to keep that flexibility going so many things to help people get in touch with their values and what is meaningful because ultimately life is suffering Mm. there's no two ways about it life is very very hard and traumatic things happen all the time but it's full of meaning and it's full of love and it's full of um it's it's full of goodness so if people can get in touch with what they what they really care about why they are here on this earth having this life it doesn't matter how many difficult things happen if people have a clear sense of why they're here and they have support in in achieving those goals then they can deal with suffering and there's an interesting quote that someone told me once which is that stress anxiety trauma is inevitable suffering is optional because mm, yes. the, the, the yeah. suffering bit yeah. is optional like yeah, you like choose that. to suffer yeah. the, the stuff is going to happen yeah. that's inevitable mm-hmm. but we do have choice yeah. over our reaction over it. you know if i sat here Roz, and i say to you oh my god Roz, i'm so appalled and disgusted that i have to waste my morning with you mm. you're the most terrible <laughs> appalling human being i've ever met in my whole entire life yeah. how might that make you feel <laughs> Yeah. I'd probably laugh. <laughs> yeah, you might laugh because you might not take me seriously. You might get angry, you might yeah. punch me in my yeah. face. But I just said a collection of words. Yeah. However you reacted was yeah. based on your choice. And it could be laughter or, or anger or whatever. But equally, if I say to you, Rosalind, you are the most incredible, wonderful, amazing, beautiful human being I've ever had the pleasure of spending a couple of hours with. I'm so blessed and honoured mm. to have had the opportunity to talk to you today. How might you feel? Mm. I think I feel quite good. You might feel quite good, or you might be, what's he up to? You might get quite cynical. Again, there's yeah, a choice. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate their role in their yeah. experience in life. They don't appreciate that they are choosing how they react to certain external stimulus. Mm-hmm. Because all reality, our total life experience is based on our perception, not what's yeah. actually happening. A person could look at a situation mm-hmm. and react in one way, and then someone else can look at that yes. same situation and see something completely different in the same way that we could watch the same movie and mm. have a totally different experience. Yeah. And I think this is one of the key parts of, of, of this is, is really getting people to understand that their choice and their power, power quite literally being the ability mm. to do a act mm. over situations and circumstances and yes. having an opportunity to go deep inside to really understand the role that you play. Yeah. So how devastating was it for the people that went through this study to find out that they finally got something that could really help them and alleviate their their symptoms and their pain, but then being told, well, you're not allowed to take it again. I mean, oh, it was very hard. So there's actually been a film, there's a documentary called Magic Medicine Mm -hmm. that's been made about the study and it shows us with three of the participants, um, one of of whom didn't have a a good response. Um, Because I said before that for 11 it worked for two, three months, for six it was longer, like six months. There were three people for whom it didn't work at all, which a couple of them we, we have an idea about why resistance well one of them was on antidepressants still uh, before we realised yeah. that they had to come off antidepressants yeah. we're not sure about the other two but one of, one of them was in the, in the film and the other two uh, people had very very good responses and then it shows them as the depression comes back a few months later mm-hmm. and, and it shows that exactly this issue of um, them wanting to have another experience and they found something that worked and their family wanted them to have it again and then there's nothing we can do. There's no way they can have it. You know, they don't want to just, you know, of course they could access drugs if they wanted to, but they don't want to do it in any other setting than a really safe clinical mm-hmm. 
setting. So it's it's been very very hard. How frustrating is that for you? Well, I mean, some some of the people in the study have had further psychedelic experiences because they've gone to places where it's legal to do it. And there are ways that people can access this legally outside of a clinical trial. And they did have benefits, and it did help keep them well. Um, but interestingly enough, they said not it wasn't as powerful as the study. I mean, in the study, people do get a lot of... There's so much attention to the individual, and often when people are doing it... Um, in ceremonies, it's groups of people. They don't get the same one-on-one care. They don't feel quite as safe. So, so far, there's nowhere that we can suggest people get this treatment from after they've taken part in the study. Um, yeah, and it is, it's hard to see. I mean, so I do some talks with, with Ian Ruia, who's a, um, one of the participants in the study, and he does some funding talks with me, talking about his experience. We try and talk about the psilocybin experience from the perspective of the, the, the team and also from the participants. And um, yeah, it's been hard because yeah, he's his depression has started to come back now, and it's been really hard to watch that. For a while, he was, mm. you know, feeling really great and doing all these talks, and you know, just being an amazing speaker. And it's been really hard to see his depression start to come back. You know, obviously, the the, the next step is that when you produce your findings, uh, where does your report end up? Who's going to be looking at this research, and who will then take it forward beyond your research? So. In terms of getting this, in, in terms of getting psilocybin available as a treatment, it's not really our, our research will contribute to it, but it's also going to be the work of an organisation called Compass Pathways. They're actually a company called Compass Pathways who are doing large scale trials in Europe. And that is with a view to getting psilocybin um, licenses as a, as a treatment. They're, they're making psilocybin and they will, they will, they're, they're going to try and get the kind of um, the right to use it. So, yeah, I think we might be looking at, say, I don't know, five years or something before psilocybin um, becomes an available treatment for people in healthcare systems. And that would be, I assume, pharmaceutical companies manufacturing the yeah. psilocybin. Yeah. So uh, what are your thoughts on the industry that you know will potentially end up with the responsibility of making this available as a treatment modality when ultimately it was nature that was there yeah. with the answers and the, yeah. in the first place this was a natural resource which is available to, to heal us for free which is yes. going to end up in a, a corporate yes. organisation that is primarily focused on profits. Well my hope is that as many people that need, as many people that can benefit from psilocybin are able to use it safely and in a supported way. So that's the goal. So for me, it kind of makes sense that I suppose if um, if mushrooms grow all over the place, and if people not initially, but if they're in time, we move through the steps that we need to carefully move through. That in time, when more research has been done, more things have been established, safety, people that should do it shouldn't do it. When we've got further down the line of knowing a bit more about it. Um, <coughs> That my dream is that there would be that we will set up as, as a society we'll set up ways of people easily accessing this so I love the idea that we would have networks of people that were trained to sit for people in sessions um, I love the idea that we would have you know fields and fields of mushrooms growing and that you know people could you know we could go back to nature and that all of the work that certainly the work I do and the work that others do I love the idea that that would all be open access that people could access all of our protocols and our ideas and everything so that um, it would be democratically available freely to all and that it wouldn't be something that we'd make profit out of and that it wouldn't be something that was kind of controlled but that it, it, the key thing is safety and I do think that 
um, organisations like Compass need to be, we do need them, we do need mm. organisations to take this forward because our studies have very small sample sizes. So if, we, if it was left to us to try and get psilocybin licences as a treatment, we'd be waiting a long time. We don't have much funding, we can only see small samples, we're a tiny team. It does need money and it does need big organisations to push it through because the sooner people can use it, the better. So I think I'd rather a big an organisation comes in and pushes it through so that it's available sooner. But as soon as it's available and as soon as we've had the studies and as soon as it's safe, that's the point where I really hope we can go back to mushrooms because mushrooms, they're the whole <coughs> plant, they have lots of other substances in there. And nature is much cleverer than we are. Mm-hmm. And I'd much rather, you know, that we can go back to that because ultimately, if we can if we can link this back to nature connectedness, which is one of the huge insights of psychedelic therapy, if we can start to realise that nature is providing us the treatments we need, then we'll protect it, we'll protect nature. And I think you make an important point. When we got to the point where the, the, the regulation has changed, the legislation changes, and we are more able to freely access this, then obviously that's where yeah. we can go back to nature to provide us what we know of it can. Of course. I mean, when people aren't scared of it anymore and people understand how to use it safely, and people, if we have a trained-up workforce and networks of people to do this, Absolutely. why would you ever pay money to buy something in a packet that you can pick down the road? Mm-hmm. I mean, as long as people know what to look for and it's you know mm-hmm. they're careful about it and careful of identification. But I have to say, we are not ready for that now. I agree, yeah. We are not ready for that now because if people were to start going out and trying to pick mushrooms, firstly, people might pick mushrooms that are really dangerous and actually end up in hospital because it's very difficult to know which ones are the magic mushrooms. But secondly, we are just not at a stage where we know enough about it yet to, to really... That's Timothy Leary speaking. Everyone go and do mushrooms and we know where mm-hmm. that ended up. Yeah, We're I not agree. at that stage. We're at a stage where... I think it needs to stay in the research labs. I think it needs to be stayed really, really carefully controlled. Certainly there are some really good ceremonies happening and there are lots of places where it's legal and that's wonderful too, but people just need to be so, so, so careful because the last, the worst thing that could happen would be some awful incident where somebody um, became really unwell mm. because they did it unsafely and the, the Daily Mail picks it up and the whole yeah. thing gets derailed, which it still could. When I say it's past the point of no return... I think we're past the point of no return if we carry on in this vein, but if something was derailed, then it, it could always end up being exploded. Um, and uh, Rosalind, you mentioned ceremonies, so what does yeah. that mean? Yeah, I've probably mentioned ceremonies a fair while during this. So ceremony, so there is a culture of ceremonial use of psychedelics that has been for thousands of years all over the world. Um, and people go and have ayahuasca ceremonies. So ayahuasca is a kind of tea made of two plants. It's... Um, very very prevalent in Peru and in the Amazon and Brazil and more and more um, Westerners are going to these places and having these ceremonies so people sit in a circle and they drink the tea and they have a psychedelic experience and then they have some therapeutic integration afterwards and that was actually the reason why I got into this work because my best friend had an ayahuasca experience and it saved her from terrible depression and she you know it completely changed her life so there's ayahuasca and we actually we, we think that it does something very similar to psilocybin um, and then also people have mushroom ceremonies as well in some places, or think they're, they're rarer. In the Netherlands, um, psilocybin in the form of truffles is legal. So there are some mushroom ceremonies there run by the Psychedelic Society. So, yeah, those, those are, that's ceremonies. And um, we, we, have, we have a study at Imperial which is um, surveying people's um, outcomes so we ask people to fill in questionnaires before and after they go to a ceremony that they were planning to go to anyway we don't encourage people to do it if they weren't anyway and we look at the the outcomes and actually interestingly enough fl- psychological flexibility which I was talking about earlier um, seems to increase after ceremonies 
Fascinating. Mm. And, you know, see, there, there, there are many plant medicines. You, you mentioned a few, such as ayahuasca and acacia mm. and various others. Mm. Now, um, you know, from having sort of done some research on this, it's a, 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 a compound, a molecule within these substances uh, known as DMT. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, that exists in, in mushrooms as well, is that correct? Well, all living things have DMT in them, but yeah, but um, yeah. But it's, that's not really what's really making psilocybin, uh, magic, it's the psilocybin in magic mushrooms, but they all work on the serotonin receptors, D, um, DMT and psilocybin as well. And, and DMT, as you said, it exists in everything, and yeah. it's, from my understanding, it's an endogenous uh, substance which mm-hmm. we produce ourselves, um, but it's also associated with spiritual experiences, mm-hmm. from my understanding, and uh, again, from some of the stuff that I've read. Uh, there are obviously two very spiritual, arguably two very spiritual experiences mm. a human being has. One is coming into body mm. and one, the other one's leaving, mm. which is when we seem to produce copious amounts of DMT. You literally have a dump of DMT at mm. about 12 weeks gestation and when apparently that's when the spirit enters the body and also at the point of death. Mm. So this isn't something that we are introducing in that mm. we don't have ourselves. Mm. It's something that the body has an ability to produce and will produce yeah. at certain points. Um, but again, I've also learned that when you go deep into meditation, and you know, if you're doing like a 10-day meditation retreat, you probably get to day seven or eight, and you will have the same kind of experiences. When people tend to report, and having done three Vipassana myself, I can say that I've had this experience yeah. as well, where you suddenly have to this very kind of altered, trippy, psychedelic type yeah. experience without consuming anything. It's just from deep meditation. Yeah. And again, from my understanding of the science behind that is because your brain is starting to produce copious amounts of DMT. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we can do Absolutely. ourselves. We have the ability to create yeah. these states yeah. without the introduction of anything externally. Yeah. And that's such a reassuring thing for me because the idea, you know, there is such a lot of fear about these substances. But the idea that actually, yeah, it's just opening a door that, that can be opened anyway. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've had the same experience as you in, in a meditation retreat. Where I had a very, very powerful psychedelic mystical experience. And um, yeah, it's, it's simply helping people access that more quickly, I think. We obviously don't want to endorse that people rush out and, and look for mushrooms because uh, sadly it is still illegal. Obviously yeah. we are looking to change that and ensure that this work is introduced in a safe way. But if do people do want to get help, if they mm-hmm. do want to explore this further in a supervised legal way, yeah. what would you recommend? Um, so firstly, I would say um, the Psychedelic Society runs retreats in the Netherlands mm-hmm. with psilocybin truffles, similar to mushrooms. Um, I know that they have a very long waiting list, but it's still worth getting in touch with them um, if you look online their website. Um, the other thing I would say is that, I mean, people, if they have a bit more money and time, they could go and do an ayahuasca ceremony in South America, perhaps, where it's legal. And that's a bit of shamanic framework. So you work with shamans and they might sing Icaro songs and can be uh people have had very profound healing from that too but obviously when people are feeling depressed it's a long way to go and very expensive and can be quite off-putting that way um they can also they can also potentially apply to participate in our next study so i i can give you the email address if that's helpful that um, would be amazing we'll make sure we put it in the the comments and the notes um if people don't have a pen handy yeah so um, I'm just getting it now. So yeah, so our next study is going to be comparison between psilocybin and antidepressants. So everyone will have psilocybin. Some people will also be asked to take escitalopram for six weeks. So anyone that has um, 
has had escitalopram before wouldn't be eligible to participate. So we're looking with people with moderate to severe depression who um, haven't had escitalopram before. Um, and I'll give you the email address now. Mm-hmm. B.C.U.N.H.A. at imperial.ac.uk. Fantastic. We'll make sure that's in the comments. So I you know, really, really enjoyed this discussion. I am so um, massively in awe and appreciation of the work that you're doing. And is there any way that people can access your research or your findings or anything like that? Is that Yes, so if, um, yeah, so my qualitative research was um, published in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology 2016. Um, I think it's patient reports of acceptance and connectedness and psilocybin treatments, or like Mm -hmm. that. Um, And then there are the study, the outcome reports, which is Robin Carhart Harris. um, And if you just look, um, Google psilocybin for treatment resistant depression, you'll find those outcome papers there you can access. So people can read those for free. Wonderful. Rosalind, thank you so much. It's been such a fascinating discussion. I said it's something that I'm, I'm very personally interested in from my own research and my own experiences. So it's, it's been such a pleasure to, to be able to share the work and the, the amazing person behind this work to, to our audience. So we're hoping to get you back in the future when you've got yeah. your future results yes, and we can talk absolutely. more about that as well. Thank, thank you, you Rosalind. Thank, thank you. You've been listening to the Life Changing Conversations podcast with Neil Shah. This podcast was produced by Change Your World Events in collaboration with the Stress Management Society. Like, comment and share and keep the conversation going. Hashtag LCC podcast.